We will return to our series in Luke uh, starting next week. It's been my pattern to just preach on a couple of different subjects in between those chapters. And uh, this is what I wanted to share with you today. Something that has been on my heart lately and something I want to challenge you to think about. The sermon is entitled, Loving Broken People in a World Gone Mad. You may know the name Alistair Begg. He's the pastor of Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. Originally from Scotland, he's been faithfully preaching and teaching the Bible for over 40 years. He's also the voice behind the Truth for Life radio broadcast that goes out to 800 radio stations across the country. There was a recent controversy, controversy or kerfuffle is the word I like to use, because you don't get to use it very often, in the evangelical world, which involved Pastor Begg, when he was being interviewed for his latest book called the Sermon, it was a book about the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, and I had Richard read that a short bit ago. And in this interview with Alistair Begg, he spoke of the challenge of living out the teachings of Christ in the modern world, and he shared a recent experience he had with a woman who came to him and asked what to do about her grandson who was getting married to someone who was transgender. She had been invited to the wedding and she felt conflicted because she was worried that not attending was going to permanently damage that relationship. So Begg responded and asked her if her grandson and his partner knew that she was a Christian. And she said yes. And then he asked if they understood her position about their relationship. And she said yes. And then he said something quite surprising. He said, what if you went to the wedding and brought them a gift? He said, your love for them may catch them off guard, but your absence will simply reinforce the fact that they said, these people are what I always thought, judgmental, critical, and unprepared to countenance anything. And his moral of the story was that Christians need to take risks in order to show love to those around them. Now, I've been listening to Alistair Begg for at least 20 years, probably heard 200 of his sermons. He's a great Bible teacher. I love how he takes sound doctrine and makes it accessible in his teaching. His applications are usually wonderful, but I think he totally misses the mark here. Totally. I don't believe a Christian should participate in something that is unquestionably an offense to God with the hopes of winning people to Christ. I also don't think it's loving to communicate by your presence at such a ceremony that what is happening here is viable 
when the Bible says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So I'm telling you where I'm at up front so none of you start to panic and wonder what's going on here. Now, that being said, I, I understand Pastor Begg's heart. I feel like I know him. You listen to so many hours of somebody, you kind of feel like you know them. He's trying to take these deep teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain and apply them in a modern context towards a subject that the Bible doesn't directly say, here's what you do in this situation. And I appreciate his understanding that the teachings of Jesus were very radical, perhaps so radical that they might even be this radical. But I think he's wrong here. And I'm not the only one who thinks he's wrong. Many were shocked at his advice that he gave to this woman. This was something that was broadcast. And so a lot of people reached out to him and said, we want to make sure we understand you correctly here. Can you clarify or can you recant what advice you gave to this woman because we don't think that's right. And so he preached a sermon the following Sunday, which I listened to. It was a sermon on the prodigal son. And essentially what he did in that sermon was double down on his position. Now he qualified the counsel he gave to the woman by saying, this does not mean this is counsel I would give to every person who came to me, but in this particular situation, this was the counsel I gave to her. So that got people all fired up, and there were some who responded reasonably, and there were some who I think responded way over the top, saying... Don't listen to Alistair Begg anymore. You don't recommend his ministry. You should mark him and avoid him. And to those people, I want to say, chill out. It's a bad piece of counsel, I believe. I don't think that discredits a man for 40 years of faithful ministry. I just think it's bad counsel. But since the controversy... uh, American Family Radio Network dropped him from their daily programming and John MacArthur and Alistair Begg had a conversation and Begg will not be speaking at this year's Shepherds Conference as he was scheduled to. And so since this controversy had so many Christians talking and so many opinions online, I thought I would spend some time examining what does Scripture say about this situation And I thought at the end I could even open it up to you to hear your thoughts on this and answer any questions you might have. But really what this does is touch on a much larger subject, right? So the the Scripture doesn't say, here's what you do in every possible situation, in every point in history that you find yourself, but it does give us overarching principles to help guide us in our thinking. And the larger subject here is obviously the subject of humanity and marriage and God's design for the universe. So that is the bigger, broader picture that we need to consider. And I think it's going to help reinforce my sermon last week if you were here for that. And you'll see some crossover there. So we need to look at the broad picture. Let's start 
at the beginning. We discover in the first few pages of the Bible what you would expect to find, the creation of the universe. God, in His good pleasure, created all things, and He created all things good. And not only good, He created them with order, and He created them with purpose. Just like we might see an artist or craftsman take great care to design a masterpiece, so God took great care in the design and the functionality of His creation. And if you read throughout Genesis, the first chapter, there's a pattern that emerges as he's describing the creation. The pattern is that God creates something, and then he separates it, and then he brings it back together again in a more wonderful and more complementary fashion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, heavens here includes the sky and the atmosphere and beyond, but it also includes the realm of God. And in Genesis 1, we discover that God creates the heavens and the earth, and then He separates them, and then He brings them together again. So you have two different realms, heaven and earth, and yet they are in some way one. This is before the fall. Heaven and earth are in harmony together. They were different, but they were united. Then when God created light and darkness, we see this very same pattern. It says in verses 4 and 5, God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. Okay, So He created them, and then He separates them, and then He brings them together again. They are different, but they are complementary to one another. Different but united. God does the same with the two great lights, sun and moon. He creates these lights that are going to govern this earth. One to rule the day, one to rule the night, made by God to make a singular 24-hour period. They are different, but they are united. Again, the sea and dry land, He creates them. He separates land from sea, and then He brings them together again. And they are different from one another, but they are joined together and they are designed to be as one. Different but united. And then the climax of all of this is on day six when God makes man. He makes man in His very image and what does He do? He creates the man. And then He separates the man from His own body. He creates a woman. And then He brings the two back together again in a more wonderful and more complementary fashion than before. And we see in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God joins the man and woman together and blesses them, man and woman, different but united, brought together to love and serve God and His good creation and to know Him and to enjoy Him forever. And the very first command God gives to His newly formed human creatures made in His image 
is a command to engage in a one flesh union of intimacy. A covenant. God separates Adam into two, male and female, and then He brings them back together into one. Different, but united. One becomes two, and two becomes one. Just like the heavens and the earth, just like the darkness and light, just like the sun and the moon, just like the sea and dry land. The man is the image of God, and what is taken from his side is the woman who is also the image of God. And a male and a female complementing one another in a covenantal union union are the fullness of this image of God. A husband and wife joined together forms a more complete picture of the divine reflection, which is the image of God, male and female. And so in this creation narrative in Genesis, the woman is given to Adam, and yet she's also part of Adam. She is literally his body. This sheds more light on what Paul says in Ephesians 5, which we looked at briefly last week, describing the duties of a husband, Ephesians 5.28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. We have the archetype in Adam. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So all covenantal unions began in Adam, which is male and female counterparts, and God is the one who joins them together and they become one flesh And in that covenant union, they glorify God because they fulfill His design for them. This becomes the covenantal context where sexuality is expressed. Their biology was made to complement one another through the sexual act where their individual bodies become one again. And because they are one, they belong to each other. Paul says something really shocking in 1 Corinthians 7.4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, what does he mean? Well, the reason that they have authority over one another is because in some mysterious way they are one in the eyes of God. And the only way to separate that union is to be death. Now we know divorce separates that union. But apart from sin being involved, and divorce involves sin doesn't mean every divorce is a sin, but every divorce involves sin. If sin is not involved, the only way to separate that union that God has joined together, male and female, is through one of those partners dying. So what Paul's describing here also has echoes from the Garden of Eden. They have authority over one another because they share the same body somehow mysteriously in the eyes of God 
your mind is to go back to the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden, and it makes more sense. So God creates Adam, He separates Adam, He brings Adam back together again in a male-female, one-flesh union. And that is God's design, and it is beautiful. Now, thinking back to the garden, we know that that arrangement did not last very long. In just the third chapter, the paradise of God is quickly forfeited. Not long after man is made in God's image, male and female, they got to experience this wonderful union. We don't know how long it was, but there at some point was a rebellion. Satan deceives the woman. Both man and woman participate in forging their own path, and the earth and everything in it is cursed. We call this the fall. God and man are no longer in fellowship with one another. Heaven and earth are no longer joined together. And the unity designed for the one flesh male-female union is now susceptible to gross distortion. This is why not too long into the book, God has to give specific prohibitions about the misuse of human sexuality. If you've ever read through Leviticus chapters 18, 18 through 20, here's all kinds of lists of what you can and cannot do in this area. Fornication is sin. That's a sexual union outside of a covenantal promise. Adultery Violation of the covenant, rape, we know what that is, bestiality, incest, cross-dressing of any form, any kind of confusion of the sexes is forbidden. Homosexuality, pederasty and pedophilia, that involves children. God calls these things an abomination, which is the strongest language in the Hebrew. To'eva, it's the strongest negative in the Hebrew language He absolutely abominates these things, makes it very clear. This is not what I designed. This is not how this thing works. You don't do it outside of your covenant. You don't do it with an animal. You don't do it with someone of the same sex. Crystal clear. If you look at all of the relevant texts in the Bible concerning this subject, there's no other sexual arrangement that receives divine approval other than the male-female one-flesh union through the covenant of marriage. Now, why is one man and one woman so important? Well, we saw because in Genesis, that's how God designed it. The complementary parts coming together to be one in a more wonderful way than before. But it's even more than that. Flashback to last week. Because in Ephesians 5, Paul reveals a mystery. And the mystery is that this sexual design with Adam and Eve in the garden, which is the prototype for all covenantal relationships, is not only these two becoming one, but it is a picture of the Gospel itself. This is review, if you were here last week. 
But when a man and woman are joined together, different but united, they form a picture of what the divine and human relationship looks like. Paul says in Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's quoting Genesis. And then he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's not referring to Adam and Eve, although we know it is historically. But he's saying the point of Adam and Eve and the point of all marriage is Christ and the church. That's what it represents. So every time you see a husband and wife, you are seeing a picture of God's design for the universe. The universe is simply the stage on which God is presenting this grand plan of being joined to His human creation in a covenant. And He's got all these illustrations running around the world so people can see what it looks like. Jesus is the husband who lays down his life for his bride. The church in turn submits to and serves her husband. And there is a beautiful and wonderful harmony that is brought forth from that. So marriage is much more than some social contract between two individuals. It is a picture of God's saving and redeeming love. That's what marriage is. It's it's to point us to the glory of God's design in His relationship to us. The male-female covenant is not just incidental to the story of the Bible. It is fundamental to the entire message. Now, we know that man has been ruined in the fall and man has become rebels by nature and man does not like boundaries. And what man wants to do at the very core of his being is live in a world where there is no God and there are no restrictions. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no God. Imagine there's no judgment day. That's what that song's about. Imagine us all doing what we want with whom we want whenever we want. God gives man life, and to bless him, and to benefit him, he gives him structure, he gives him guidelines, he shows him which way to go. And because man's relationship with God is severed, and he does not delight in his Creator, those restrictions seem oppressive, and they are ignored so that man's desires can run wild in whatever direction he wants them to. This is the heart of Psalm 2, which is a description of man's desire to do away with God. 
Psalm 2, David asks, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. In other words, let's all get together and let's get rid of God and overthrow Him so that we can be free. Because he thinks sexual autonomy is actually freedom. God's beautiful design in Genesis of male and female is not seen as something praiseworthy, but as something confining. Something that's robbing us of freedom. And so the natural man, the unbelieving man, asks, why would your God not allow you to do as you wish? Which is also what Satan asked Eve in the garden. And so man refuses God's Word, and we as a society have been moving gradually to its ultimate goal, which is to obliterate all of the boundaries that God has set in place in regard to human sexuality. In the creation narrative, God has made clear distinctions and the intention on the part of rebels is to revolt against those distinctions. Doug Wilson in his book, Reforming Marriage, said, all rebellion is against... All rebellion against God is rooted ultimately in a desire to replace Him. Men do not just want to flee from the authority of God, they want to topple Him. This may not mean there is always a conscious desire to overthrow the Creator, but it certainly means that whether conscious or not, these unsuccessful attempts to become as God will result in chaos in the lives of the rebels. And when rebellion is sexual in nature, the chaos is sexual in nature. And are we not seeing sexual chaos in our day? So the good design of God, this glorious one flesh union between male and female, is utterly corrupted. And the aftermath of that is all manner of sexual confusion and distortion. God has something to say about this. In fact, He describes it for us in Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 21, He says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's talking here about idolatry. The history of the world is a history of man's idolatry. Replacing the truth of God for something else. He says in verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So this is the root of a sexual revolution. 
The truth of God is removed. Idols are put in His place. And the mindset becomes that the body is merely a vehicle for fulfilling various lusts. And Paul says in Romans 1 that the abandonment of truth becomes a judgment from God because man's lusts do not have a stopping point. It is like a car running out of control without brakes heading for a cliff. If God's design of sexual intimacy in a marriage is like a beautiful fireplace with a fire, sinful man has the curtains on fire and the whole house is in danger of burning down. Doug Wilson again. Lust is incapable of saying enough. There must always be something else, something more. There is pleasure, but never satisfaction. It is for this reason that lust will always lead to various perversions. Once all the possible pleasure has been squeezed out of the finite sexual limits given to us by God, lust demands new territory. So we see in Romans 1 this descent of man. We see the exchanging of truth, the truth of God for a lie, which results in a sexual revolution. And then what follows the sexual revolution is a homosexual revolution. Back to Romans 1, verse 26. He says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So, as a form of judgment, God gives the people over to what is in their hearts. He says, you want to go that way, then go. If man will not conform to God's good boundaries, God will give them what they want. And if you notice, this judgment results in a broken way of thinking. He says in verse 28, he gives them over to a debased mind. That which was previously off limits all of a sudden becomes normative. That which was previously evil is now seen as good. And rather than being free when they break those chains, when they forge their own path, they find themselves trapped. Prisoners to their own desires. Looking back in history, we saw a sexual revolution in the 1960s, which gave way to a homosexual revolution in the 1990s and beyond, to where we are now seeing a transgender revolution, where a man, grown man, can put on a dress and makeup 
and change his name, and everyone is supposed to applaud him for being so brave to express his true self in such a way. This is what we are witnessing today. It is a world in the midst of sexual anarchy, and the core of that is a defiance against the good intentions of God. The good and righteous design and plan of God. And you discover that the only sin in that whole scenario is committed by those who would say such behavior is wrong. The only sin committed is by the people who want to stop the drag queens from spending time with children. Those are the ones who are sinning. Just to quote one of the modern prophets of this sexual revolution, people have the right to be what they want as regards to their gender identity and sexual orientation, to do anything they want and with anyone they want. Now, how did we get here? Well, you have to get rid of God first. And so before the sexual revolution, you had to come up with a creation story. And the creation story is we don't need God anymore because we are all just random molecules bouncing around the universe from time and chance. And it just so happened that life formed and it just so happened that billions and billions of years through genetic mutation, we have all of this diversity of life. Isn't it just so Miraculous. And so if random evolution is your God, that there is no designer, there is no meaning in life, there is no purpose, you set your own boundaries, you become your own God, and who is to tell you that you cannot change your identity or your gender because you're the one who calls the shots? You decide who you are. And so parents are so deluded that they are letting their children decide whether they are a boy or a girl. It's insanity. If I told people 20 years ago this is what would be happening, they would call that fear-mongering. Oh, that's ridiculous. Now, I can't see into the future, but I have a feeling the next once this transgender wall is toppled, the very next thing is going to be the age of consent. Who are you to say a 13-year-old can't love who they want to love? Who are you to say? I mean, we've already got children talking about gender and sexuality. Why wouldn't that be the next thing on the agenda? I mean, if there's only sky above us, why not? Now, I should say at this point that Alistair Begg, going back to my introduction, believes all of this. He teaches all of this. He is totally orthodox in Genesis 1 and 2, in Romans chapter uh, 1 and 2, in Ephesians chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
the issue now becomes, this is going on. We are seeing this. The Word of God is coming alive in our culture today. What, Christian, do you do to love those who are trapped in this sexual anarchy? What do you do? How do you love them? How do we obey Jesus? When He says this, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Everything I said so far has, would be considered hate by some people in this culture. They would say, you're full of hate. I'm just telling you what God says. They would consider me an enemy. My job is to love them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So how do you love someone who is engaged in a soul-defiling, God-dishonoring lifestyle and believes that he or she can actually join in this covenantal union that God has designed, which is an absolute affront to a holy God. It is shaking your fist to heaven. God calls it an abomination. And he calls you to love. I want you to be thinking about that because I'm going to ask you about it in a little bit. But let's talk about weddings for a minute. The Bible refers to weddings in, I think, 30 plus books of the 66 books of the Bible. Somewhat different than modern weddings, the ancient weddings uh, usually were a contract before God that involved two families, and the father uh, of the bride would um, so, sorry the the father of the bride yes would receive a dowry in exchange or some kind of payment for his daughter to be wed to this young man and this was a benefit to both families this was contractual it was before God but it was very family oriented that is an ancient Near Eastern picture of marriage. What we have today with courtship and all the rest is very different. But going back to the ancient wedding, or the ancient joining together of male and female, you did not have vows, you did not have a priest, you did not have a formal ceremony usually, you did not have to register with the county, there was no license. But it was no less binding. In the New Testament, we see evidence of wedding parties. Jesus refers to uh, bridesmaids. Those are the ten virgins in Matthew 25. He refers to the guests of the groom when he refers to the disciples. And 
He's even present at a wedding in John chapter 2, you remember, in the wedding in Cana. Today, the average wedding is a ceremony that often includes vows, sometimes it includes prayers, and it is intended to make the couple's commitment to one another somewhat public. If it's a Christian ceremony, it some way links their love to the love of God and the gospel, hopefully, but it is requesting that the community hold this couple accountable and support them and help them maintain their marriage And that's what you have probably been exposed to today. But whether we are talking about a marriage in the Old Testament or New Testament, whether it is a secular or Christian modern marriage, whether it is any combination of any kind of marriage, what you have throughout all of them, what you have in common with all of them, is that those present are in some way joining in some kind of celebration of what is taking place. Now, you might read the New Testament Gospels and you see the Jews took this to the extreme and they would party for a week when someone got married. I mean, you remember the wedding in Cana. They had huge jugs and they ran out of wine and Jesus filled them all up again. I mean, this thing was going on for a while. The people are there to celebrate what's happening. And such a celebration is aligning yourself with what is happening. And the key to this is, as, as we think through this, if this is something that is an offense to God, and my presence is a participation in that offense, then I absolutely must abstain from being present at such an occasion. I mean, I don't have Bible verses here. I can't throw up a, a verse that says, but I'm thinking principally here. I mean, uh, if God says this kind of arrangement is not what I designed, in fact, it's an abomination, and we know that a wedding is a celebration of the occasion of two people coming together, and our presence there is showing support for such an occasion, then Christians should not attend those kinds of events. I mean, that seems plain to me if I'm making a deduction here. In the case of a homosexual ceremony, or now we have transgender, it's all based on a lie. And the lie is that people can go outside of God's good design for marriage and still benefit from the marriage. It's that they can still be part of this coming together that God has designed, but they don't want to do it God's way. They refuse to do it God's way. They're going to do it their way. And yet they still want to do it. Just not God's way. Marriage is what we say it is and we are going to ignore or even suppress what God had planned. I believe being present at such an event does not show love to God, who is the author of marriage, and I don't think it shows love to those who are being part of this ceremony because your presence communicates approval and you are the one that God has put in their life to tell them the truth. And 
If you read Ephesians 5, it confuses and obfuscates the very gospel itself. Oh, Father, thank you so much that we can think through these things and have your word in our language so that we can learn and grow and discern what you would have us do in all of these complicated situations as we make our way through this wilderness wandering wandering into the promised land. Lord, please bless us in this. Please help us to have hearts of love and compassion. May we not be like the religious leaders who despised sinners, but Lord, may, may our hearts be so broken for them, Lord, that we would do all that we can to reach out to them. So thank you for your word, and please bless our week as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.